Welcome to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, the true crime podcast that features the good apples and the bad apples within the school system. My name is Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So join me as I present school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Hello everyone, my name is Anna Thomas. Thank you for joining me today for episode 19. Firstly, a few shout-outs to our new Facebook group members. Hello to Jessica Metcalf, Karen Turner and Gina Beckner. Also, I'd like to share with you a few lovely reviews that the podcast got. The first one from Kay Killip. Great, just found this and am very impressed. Anna has a great speaking voice and the PC is well presented. Mostly crimes that I've never heard of before. All very interesting. And on YouTube, Julie said, good podcast. Glad I found you. Thank you guys for your lovely words. Now today we are going to visit the country of Taiwan. Did you know that garbage trucks play music when collecting rubbish? Well, they do. This prompts people to bring their garbage to the truck. The music that is played is Beethoven's Fur Elise. This reminds me of my childhood when we heard the music playing and we knew it was the ice cream truck coming. But I must remember, if I ever go to Taiwan, not to run after the garbage truck expecting to get an ice cream. White symbolises death in Taiwan and is used at funerals instead of black. At weddings, you will see the colour red instead of white as it represents good luck. Taiwan has been dubbed the face mask capital of Asia because the Taiwanese often wear surgical face masks. They wear them to protect from illness, to protect their skin from the sun or to filter out pollutants. Even newscasters will wear face masks while they are on air. Hmm. So you're watching the news and the newsreaders are wearing masks? Is that right? If you're from Taiwan, can you please get in touch with me? Because I find that really interesting. I can imagine if they were on the radio and you wouldn't see them, but actually on television. So get in touch. I really want to find out whether that's actually correct information. In Taiwan, the number four, like the number 13 in America and other countries, the number four is considered unlucky. Buildings such as hospitals and hotels don't have a fourth floor. In Taiwan, it is traditional for an astrologer to determine whether a match between couples is a good one. The astrologer also chooses a date and time for the wedding. Hmm. So hello everyone from Taiwan. So let's preview the stories today. The first bad apple is called Dammit. The students were swimming in a dam on school camp. What happened? The second good apple story is called Bossy Boots. Have you ever had a bad boss? The teacher in this story did. So let's set the context for the story. I want you to think back to your high school days. No doubt you would have gone on school camps. I vividly remember school camps. They were so much fun, especially the year 12 camp. I had gone to a girls Catholic high school up to year 11 
but they didn't have year 12 at my school. So instead, I went to a boys' Catholic school nearby that did allow girls in year 12. So it was all boys and only girls could go to the school for year 12. So me and my other friends from my school went to the boys' school. And this school, because it was close by, it was also the schools where our brothers went. So my both of my brothers were there at the time as well. So as you can imagine, what it was like for us girls to be suddenly be surrounded by boys at school and vice versa for the boys to suddenly have girls in year 12. There were about 20 of us girls and about 80 boys. So you could say that we were the centre of attention. And of course, we had absolutely no problem with that. Needless to say, the school camp that year was so fun. And even now, all these decades later, I still think about it very, very fondly. So you might also have some very, very fond memories of your school camps as well. This first Bad Apple story took place in Australia in 2010. A group of 78 excited students were on their school camp. 12-year-old Kyle Vassell was one of those students. They had spent the morning on a bushwalk and afterwards were allowed to cool off and swim in a dam on the campground. The teacher reminded the students of the rules. No pushing, no dunking, no diving, no splashing and no fighting. Now before we go on, I'm just going to explain what a dam is. As many of you are from different countries and English isn't your first language, so you might not know what it is. A dam is a large hole made to hold water. It's like a small lake or a water hole. You can often find them in country areas on farms, especially in places that don't get much rain. Now, Kyle was swimming with some of his friends in the dam at the camp, and one of those friends, Jay, recalled what happened. Me and Kyle were having a swim in the middle of the dam. And we were having a laugh. Then Jay said that he got out of the dam to remove his socks and told Kyle that he'd be back in a minute. As Jay was coming back to the dam, he heard someone screaming, help, help. Kyle got into difficulty swimming. Classmates tried to help him and the teachers were alerted. One teacher jumped in but was unable to find Kyle. His body was recovered two hours later, by police divers. I'm now going to go through the coroner's findings about what happened. There were five teachers on the camp and six other support staff who were former students from the school. At the time when the tragedy occurred, there were two teachers who were supervising the students swimming in the dam and four of the other former students. Kyle had only been in the water for five minutes before he got into difficulty. He had been relatively close to the water's edge and two students tried to help him. Kyle was struggling and he pulled one of the students under the water. The student surfaced, but Kyle didn't. As Kyle had asthma, it was believed that maybe he had panicked because he thought he was having an asthma attack. The coroner concluded that the teachers and the other supervisors failed to notice what was happening quickly enough as they were engaged in conversations. 
he stated that there may have been a strong possibility that Kyle could have been saved had the supervisors responded in a timely manner. The supervisors also failed to understand what they were seeing as Kyle was struggling. It was believed this was due to the fact that they had received very little water safety training. They were not aware of the proper supervision required for dam swimming or how to respond to an emergency. The coroner stated, What most of the group were watching was misinterpreted because they were untrained in issues to do with water safety and as a result were not familiar with what to look out for, he said. It was also found that only one of the camp teachers had CPR training, but that person was not at the dam at the time. The coroner was scathing of the school's lack of risk assessment and crisis management processes. There was no life-saving equipment, such as flotation devices. He said, I further find that had the emergency rescue effort been undertaken with earlier appropriate school-sponsored direction, including safety supports in place, that there is no reason to believe that Kyle would have been brought from the dam in a timely way. The coroner had this to say about the students who tried to help Kyle. I commend this group for their selfless and passionate endeavours as they were undertaken to protect their classmate. The coroner also noted that the school was not aware of the Department of Education and Early Childhood Development Guidelines for Education Outdoors, but since Kyle's death, it had introduced new policies to comply with the guidelines, including policies on recreational swimming, water activity safety, and risk management safety. I'm now going to talk about the statement that Kyle's mother gave to the coroner. She said Kyle was a competent swimmer, but only had experience at pools and the beach, and had never swum in lakes or dams. Although the camp documents stated for students to bring swimming gear, she didn't know he would be swimming and didn't pack swimmers for him. The students had not been assessed for their swimming abilities and parents were not asked to provide any information on their children's capabilities. The coroner recommended that the school assess students' swimming skills if water activities were to be undertaken and the school has now put this policy into place. After the coroner handed down his recommendation, the family's lawyer said that they would consider the findings and whether to launch legal action against the school or the teachers involved. I'm no lawyer, but I would think they would have a good case. For a school not to be aware of, the education department's own guidelines seems so negligent. This all happened a number of years ago, but I haven't been able to find any updates as to whether the, they actually went ahead and sued, but I'm certainly going to keep looking to try to find this information. Now let's finish by focusing on Kyle and his family. He lived with his mother, Pasita, and his 17-year-old sister, Jacqueline. After his parents split up, he promised to look after his mother and sister. His mother recalled, he said to me, I am the father in the house. I am the man in the house. Even though he was a young boy, he'd take responsibility. 
No words can explain how good he was. If he did something, he'd say sorry straight away. If I'd say something, he'd never answer me back or anything. It was a tragedy that could have been avoided, she said. But she was forever grateful to the students who had attempted to help her son. So my reaction to this story, it certainly sounds like it could have been prevented. I think it was just a matter of minutes. If they had only noticed sooner, I really think it could have been saved. When we go swimming, the kids are in groups of about eight with a qualified swim instructor. Although the pool has emergency procedures and the staff are all properly trained, uh, I will still sit and watch the kids. It's such a sad story. As a parent, it wouldn't even cross your mind when your child goes on a school trip or a camp that they would lose their life. But this now is the second story that I've covered about a school camp death. If you haven't listened to the story, it's episode 11 and it's called Boot Camp. So you might want to listen to that one. So let's have a break now with these podcast recommendations, Murder in the Rain and True Crime Finland. Calling all true crime fans, murderinos, crime junkies, and wine coven members. Have you listened to Murder in the Rain yet? Murder in the Rain is a true crime podcast based in the Pacific Northwest, focused on the local cases that make us the notorious home of bizarre crimes and serial killers. I'm your host, Alicia Holland. And I'm your host, Emily Rowney. Josh, I forgot. I forgot. I was. In each episode, we will cover a case to bring you all the details of the crime. We often feature interviews with people close to the cases, including authors, victims, doctors, and detectives. Most content is dark and not suitable for young or sensitive listeners, but we do try to lighten the mood by providing a blooper reel at the end of every single episode. Trust me, you'll love it. Check us out today, and if you like us, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and leave us a review. Our website, MurderInTheRain.com, has additional content, podcast feeds, discount codes to some of our sponsors, and an interactive map with locations for each episode. Hi, this is Minna from True Crime Finland. Ah, Finland. So peaceful and quiet. There isn't even any crime there, right? Wrong. Join me every two weeks in discovering the dark side of the land of a thousand lakes. From the legendary and infamous to the lesser known and forgotten cases, find True Crime Finland wherever you get your podcasts. Let's now go on to the Good Apple story. I'd like to ask you about your job. Are you a boss or do you work for someone? Have you ever had an experience with a difficult boss? This story is about a teacher who had a difficult principal. This is her story and I'm going to read the full story from the scholastic.com website. The story is called, A Bad Principal Taught Me a Good Lesson. She stood at the front of the room, hands on hips, and faced us all as if we were prisoners. Keep in mind that I'm the boss, she said. You will do as you're told, and if you don't, I will make your lives miserable. 
This was my first faculty meeting of the year. As a new teacher, my first ever. And this woman was my principal. Fresh out of college, I had accepted the position of kindergarten teacher at a public school. The principal arrived at the same time. From day one, she made it clear that it was time for some changes. Instructors with seniority were dismissed and quickly replaced with the new principal's close friends. An elderly teacher with a physical disability was moved upstairs to a new classroom. When she asked if she could return to her former room, the principal replied, deal with it. Upset, the staff began to complain, but nothing changed. New and inexperienced, I decided to keep my mouth shut. Young, vulnerable and reluctant to stand up for myself, I was the perfect victim. While everyone laboured under the tension, by my second year, it became a personal battle. She was out to get me. Her first hostile action was to move me, without cause, to a different classroom in a noisy, high-traffic area. When I told her that parents had protested that this environment interfered with the children's learning, she lashed out, saying, You're staying exactly where you are, and you'd better deal with the parents because I won't. She would yell at me in front of my colleagues, saying things like, Can't you do things right? You're still a baby wearing diapers. Come down from the clouds. You're too much of a dreamer. She never missed an opportunity to humiliate me. In my third year, my classroom was moved once again, this time to a small, depressing storage room without windows or fire escapes. Occasionally, the principal would stalk into my classroom, demanding that students shut up. Sometimes she scribbled notes, occasionally giving me a contemptuous glance. I knew that even though I did my job to the best of my ability, it was never good enough. Although the performance assessments I received were acceptable, she never discussed them with me. She simply grunted, sign here, thrusting forward the evaluation sheet. After three years of working in this environment, my health began to be affected. I experienced bad headaches and grew increasingly depressed. Day after day, I woke up with a knot in my stomach, knowing I had to face the monster. Then I found a ray of hope. I'd read these words by former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. You're nobody's victim without your permission. I knew that I had to take control of my life and stop blaming my principal. I couldn't control her behaviour, but I could control my reactions to it. I decided to attend a seminar that emphasised effective communication strategies. There I learned that bullies are usually cowards who act upon their fears and insecurities. I also learned non-confrontational phrases to use in conversation, such as prefacing a statement with, in my opinion. I also planned ahead for when I knew I would have to speak one-on-one -on -one with the principal. First, I would gauge her mood that day, and if I found her unapproachable, I would write her a note requesting a meeting, and I mustered 
my courage and contacted my union representative for advice. She recommended I document everything my boss said and did to me. If she asked to meet with me, I should insist on having a third party present. In addition, the representative provided me with a guidebook listing my legal rights. A group of teachers and I formed a support group where we brainstormed ideas on how to handle our boss. Our most successful tactic was to substitute positive, self-supporting thoughts for negative ones, such as problems can be seen as challenges instead of setbacks. And somewhere in this experience is an opportunity for growth. When repeated again and again, these affirmations became believable. We also studied books on the topic of dealing with difficult people, which gave tips such as stand up for yourself, stand up straight and make eye contact, and take time to know the person. I proved one of these maxims true while chatting with my principal about the beautiful performance of the leading dancer in the Nutcracker Suite. Coincidentally, my boss shared my passion for ballet and had seen the same performance. I discovered that she had another side to her, previously hidden. I began to see her with different eyes. We now had something in common and her abuse slackened. Little by little, I gained my confidence and started to see changes. My principal began communicating with me without yelling. She began making time to listen to my thoughts and opinions. One day after a classroom observation, she actually complimented my creative writing lesson. Although my principal and I, and I never became friends, by the end of the school year, we managed to develop a healthy respect for each other. Two years later, I was given an opportunity to teach at a superior school, one with a supportive and encouraging principal, and I chose to make the change. I do not regret, however, my time at that first school because I came away with a valuable lesson. I learned that I would never again allow myself to be a victim. End of story. All right, so before we finish today, I just wanted to let you know that there won't be a preview of the next episode as it's going to be a special episode. It's episode 20, so I thought I would do something a little bit different to celebrate this milestone. So you'll be hearing from other podcasters. So I hope you can join me in the celebration for episode 20. But let's finish with the usual end of episode quote. Not all superheroes have capes. They have teaching degrees. Bye for now. And remember to be a good apple.